Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, CNN podcast fans. This is David Axelrod inviting you to listen to my podcast, The Axe Files, I go beyond the sound bites in revealing conversations with the most interesting players in politics. Look for it at cnn.com slash podcast and on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Welcome back to our CNN election special, The Final Five. Joining us now, the Republican presidential frontrunner, Donald Trump. Mr. Trump, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. This is your first day in Washington in, in quite a while. Uh, I know there's a lot of focus today on foreign policy. Let me ask you about U.S. participation in NATO. Do you think the United States needs to rethink U.S. involvement in NATO? Yes, because it's costing us too much money. And frankly, they have to put up more money. They're going to have to put some up also. We're not we're, we're paying disproportionately. It's too much, and frankly, it's a different world than it was when we originally conceived of the idea and everybody got together. But we're taking care of, as an example, the Ukraine. I mean, the countries over there don't seem to be so interested, and we're the ones taking the brunt of it. So I think we have to reconsider, keep NATO, but maybe we have to pay a lot less toward the NATO itself. Well, when you say keep NATO, NATO has been around since right after World War II in 1949. It's been a cornerstone of U.S. national security around the world. NATO allies hear you say that they're not going to be happy. Well, they might not be happy, but, you know, they have to help us also. It has to be. We are paying disproportionately. And very importantly, if you use Ukraine as an example, and that's a great example, the country surrounding Ukraine, I mean, they don't seem to care as much about it as we do. So, there has to be at least a change in philosophy, and there also has to be a change in the cut-up, the money, the spread, because it's too much. So you're really suggesting the United States should decrease its role in NATO? Not decrease its role, but certainly decrease the kind of spending. We are spending a tremendous amount in NATO, and other people proportionately less. No good. What do you say to uh, allies who are watching, and uh, they're not happy with what you're saying? What do you say to those allies? Make them happy. What? They're not happy. What? We're spending a fortune. We are spending tremendous amounts of money. And you look at countries that circle other countries, they're not as bothered by it as we are. So you have to make them happy. But the kind of money, look, we owe $19 trillion. It's going to be $21 trillion very soon with the crazy omnibus budget that they just passed, which is ridiculous. We can't afford to do all of this anymore to the same extent. That was a different time. It was a different age. Let's talk about what you told The Washington Post earlier today. You suggested the U.S. should be non-interventionist. But you remember in our last debate, you suggested maybe the U.S. would have to deploy twenty or 30,000 troops in Iraq and Syria to destroy ISIS. What I said is that they tell me, the military tells me, you'd need twenty or 30,000 troops. I wouldn't deploy 20 or 1,000. I'd get people from that part of the world to put up the troops, and I'd certainly give them air power and air support and some military support. But I would never put up 20 or 30,000. So if the military I, commander said to you, 
Mr. President, we need 20 or 30,000 troops to destroy ISIS. So you got to send them in to Iraq and Syria. You would say, you said would, to, in the I debate, would, you said you'd I listen say, to the generals. What I, I do listen to the generals, but I would much rather have people in the local area, in the area, put up the troops. To me, that's very important. I don't want to send, we've had, look, we've spent $2 trillion at least in Iraq. We're spending trillions of dollars in the Middle East. You know what we are now? We're further back than we were 15 years ago. We are in such bad shape. The Middle East is a disaster for us. And in the meantime, our country is crumbling. We have a country, the roads are no good. The hospitals are no good. The airports are third world airports. You look at LaGuardia and Kennedy and LAX and all of the airports. And you go to other countries. You go to Dubai and you go to Qatar and you go to these countries. It's like unbelievable. Rolf, we have to rebuild our country. Let's talk about the subject of your speech today at APAC, Israel. Uh, Hillary Clinton spoke this morning at the APAC conference. Listen to what she said. Listen to this clip. We need steady hands, not a president who says he's neutral on Monday, pro-Israel on Tuesday, and who knows what on Wednesday, because everything's negotiable. Well, my friends... Israel's security is non-negotiable. She's talking about you. What's your well, response? I, I agree with her on the last statement. It is non-negotiable. And frankly, uh, she is, just doesn't know me. She doesn't know my policy. She doesn't know what I'm going to be doing. She says you don't have steady hands. I have the steadiest hands. Look at those hands. I have the steadiest hands and far steadier than hers. Look where she got us. I mean, look at Libya. Look at the migration. Look at Benghazi. I mean, here's a woman, it's talk, she's just writing, you know, she's just reading it off a teleprompter. She's just, all she does, believe me, they write that for her. Look at the job, probably in history, although I think John Kerry may even be worse. I'm not sure after the Iran deal, but look at what she's done. She's referring Take to your comment that you wanted to be neutral as a negotiator to try to achieve an Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement. I would love to be neutral if it's possible. It's probably not pos possible. Because there's so much hatred. There's so much going on. I am very pro-Israel. I've always been pro-Israel. Uh, I have many awards from Israel. Many, many awards. I've contributed a lot of money to Israel. There's nobody more pro-Israel than I am. We have to protect Israel. Israel is so important to us. What do the Palestinians need to do for you as president to be neutral in trying to achieve a well, peace I, agreement? I would love to achieve a peace agreement. You know, what do as, the Palestinians need to do? Well, let me tell you. Well, the one thing they have to do is they have to end terror. Okay? They have to stop with the terror. Because what they're doing with the missiles and with the stabbings and with all of the other things that they do, it's horrible. And they've got to, it's got to end. Now, I have many, many friends from Israel and Jewish friends. Everybody wants to see peace. It seems to be the all-time Olympics in peace, in, in a deal. Can you make that deal between Israel and the Palestinians? I think the answer is maybe. Well, and what, I never what say else that. do they have to I, do I besides stopping that. terror? Well, I think, the, I think a primary thing is stopping terror. If you look at what's going on, I think a primary thing is stopping terror. But look, one thing they have to do is they have to stop the stabbings, the weapons, the military, what they're doing is incredible. They killed a young man, who, a young soldier last week. They stabbed him for, this is crazy. Now, from the time they're born, they're educated a certain way. It's got to change. There's a bad mindset going on, Will. Back in December, you seemed to question whether Israel would be willing to make the concessions it would need to make to achieve a two-state solution, Israel and Palestine. What are you expecting from Israel? What kind of concessions? I, I can say this. I can say this. I believe that Bibi and I believe that 
almost everybody over there wants a deal, wants some deal done. Would you want Israel to stop building settlements in East Jerusalem and the West Bank? I will tell you the biggest thing from my standpoint is there has to be a different way. There has to be a different attitude because... Of all the deals that I've ever seen, this is the one that's the most difficult. Not the Iran deal, which was a horrible deal. And we wouldn't want to have a deal like that. One other thing, I don't like the United Nations getting involved in the negotiation. This has to be a deal between the Palestinians and the Israelis. This has to be that. You can't force a deal down the throats of both. But you know it will be a bad deal for Israel if they do that. So the, I would veto a deal with the United Nations. If the United Nations forces a deal, I would veto that deal immediately. You would use the U.S. veto at the Security I would use Council? The, I would absolutely veto that deal. Will That's you- not what deal-making is about. That's not what you could... They have to make their own deal. And I will try as president... Now, everybody's failed. Everybody. But I will try as president to work out a peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. Will you recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital and move the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? The answer is yes, I would. When? How quickly after you... Quickly? I mean, it's it's a process, but fairly quickly. I mean, the fact is, I would like to see it moved, and I would like to see it in Jerusalem. Hillary Clinton, at the AIPAC meeting today, she also said this, referring to you. Listen. Encouraging violence playing coy with white supremacists, calling for 12 million immigrants to be rounded up and deported, demanding we turn away refugees because of their religion, and proposing a ban on all Muslims entering the United States. If you see bigotry, oppose it. If you see violence, condemn it. If you see a bully, stand up to him. She's talking about you. I guess. I mean, look, we have to be vigilant. Our country is under siege. We're under attack. We're under attack in virtually every way. Our economy is falling apart. We're sitting on a big fat bubble. Our trade deals are no good. Our health care is no good. Our, our security is no good. Look what happens in our country. Our security is no good. People are pouring across the border. People that are convicted criminals are pouring across the border. We have to be vigilant. We have to be smarter. We're not going to have a country any longer. As you know, dozens of rabbis and other Jewish religious leaders, they're uh, protesting your speech at AIPAC. Uh, among other things, they say, uh, as Jews, we must, we must take a stand against hate. We denounce in the strongest possible terms the bigotry, racism, xenophobia, and misogyny expressed by Mr. Trump. What do you say to those rabbis and others? Well, I've heard about it, and I'll have to see what happens. I mean, are they going to leave, or are they going to want to see what I have to say? Because I have a very good chance of getting the nomination. I have a very good chance of getting the But on the substance, what do you want to say to and them? I think they, those are strong, I strong think they, words. Well, look, I mean, you know, I've heard words. I've heard Hillary's words, which are largely false, by the way. Although I will say this, we do have to practice vigilance. We have to be smart. We are not being smart. We're being very foolish right now. We can't take in the Syrian refugees. We don't know where they come from. I mean, I don't know where they come from. There's no paperwork. Nobody knows. Are they ISIS? Are they ISIS-related? What's your message to these rabbis and others who are so concerned about the words they've heard from you over these many months? My message to the rabbis is that I'm going to be great for Israel. I am very pro-Israel. You know, I was the Grand Marshal of the Israeli Day Parade a number of years ago when nobody else would have done it because it was a very bad and very dangerous time for Israel. I will be very good for Israel. Now, President Obama, the worst president that Israel has ever, I mean, there's been nothing, probably one of the worst things that's ever happened to Israel is President Obama's election. So if the rabbis want to leave, if some of them want to leave, that's okay. But the people that really understand me and they understand Israel, 
They know I'm going to be the best. They're, they're a condemnation. They're not talking about Israel. They're talking about bigotry, racism, xenophobia, uh, and misogyny. Or, or let's call it intelligence. We have to be careful. We have to be careful who we allow into the country. We've had tremendous problems. Look what happened in California recently with the woman who comes in, radicalizes the guy. They walk into their workplace. They kill 14 people. Look at what happened in Paris, France. We have to be careful, Wolf. I know you've disavowed David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan several times now, but why do you think these white supremacists, these various white supremacists out there are supporting your campaign? I don't know because I am the least racist person that you'll ever meet. So I don't know. And I don't know that they really are. I mean, you're telling me that, so I don't know that well, they really are. Well, the ADL put out a whole list of 10 white supremacists, neo-Nazis, they called them anti-Semites, who are out there working, supporting your campaign. I just don't know. I mean, you're telling me this, but I don't know why I am certainly the least racist person. But you condemn me. them. Of course I condemn them. Always. I've always condemned them. And you don't want their support. I don't want their support. I don't want their support. I don't need their support. Let's talk a little bit about Cuba right now, historic moment. The president of the United States is in Cuba as we speak right now, the first time in 88 years an American president has gone to Cuba. If you're elected president, would you continue to normalize economic and diplomatic relations with Cuba? Probably so, but I'd want much better deals than we're making. For instance, I read where Cuba expects to be bringing a major lawsuit against us for all of the problems that we've caused them over the last long period of time. For billions and billions of dollars, naturally, before I did anything as to normalization, I would absolutely make them sign something that no way that suit is going to be brought. I thought it was very disrespectful when the president of the United States flies into Cuba last night and Castro wasn't there to meet him. Wasn't there to meet him. Now, he met the pope. He meets other leaders of much smaller countries, much, frankly, less important countries. And he wasn't there to meet the president getting off of Air Force One. I thought that was a very big slight. I, I'll be honest. I, I don't know how Obama felt about that. I think that was a very, very big slight. All right, so you, you, you say you're going to continue to try to normalize diplomatic and economic relations. Would you open a Trump hotel in Havana? I would. I would. If, at, a, at the right time, when we're allowed to do it. We're, right now, we're not. I wouldn't do it on the basis that you get a 49% interest. Because right now you get a 49% interest. Nobody knows even what the economics are or what they're going to do. And maybe it won't work out. But I will tell you, uh, I think Cuba has certain potential. And I think it's okay to bring Cuba into the fold. But you have to make a much better deal. And you have to get all liabilities. You don't want to be sued in a year from now or two years from now for $4 trillion because they say we destroyed Cuba. This has to be part of the deal. You're here in Washington, once again, first time in a while. You met with members of Congress today. Uh, you're seen as an outsider. Is, is there a turning point that you see right now happening in your race for the White House uh, as a result of your success? Well, I think the turning point has already taken place. Uh, I won Florida by 20 points against a very popular sitting senator. Uh, I won other states. I've won now just about 22 plus islands. But are you anxious islands. now to work with the so-called establishment, like with, with members of the Senate, members of the House, and, and try to... Uh, many of them want to work with me. They're calling my office. But the ones People you that I see today were not the leaders. They didn't come to okay. the meeting. They were other, they were the other members. The leaders have called me. We'll see how the leaders uh, react. But the leaders have called me. I've, been, I've spoken to Mitch McConnell. I've spoken to Paul Ryan. Uh, we'll see what happens. It's a process. Do you think now, you should have invited the congressional leadership, Paul Ryan, no, Mitch McConnell, to this meeting today? This was just a meeting. This was a meeting of some very respected people. Senator Jeff Sessions is a tremendous man, one of the most respected senators in the country. And uh, a meeting of some senators, some congressmen and women. 
uh, I think uh, it was a very good meeting. John Kasich, the Ohio governor, the Republican presidential candidate, said this on CNN. Listen. Everybody's got to face the fact that we're going to an open, multi-ballot convention. I want Ohio because of my message and my record. And guess okay. what? As a result of that, Donald Trump is going to go, not going to go to the convention with enough delegates. Your response? Well, I disagree. First of all, I almost beat him. And he's been there a long time. He's been there many, many years. And I almost beat him. Came very close. Had I had one more day or two more days, I would have beaten him. Uh, second of all, that night, I won five states between states and islands. I won five. Nobody's, I think, ever done that. Uh, and it was a very, very close race. But because I won so many others, it really nullified it, neutralized, as you know, because I've watched your reports. And I think I will win and perhaps easily without having to go through the machinations of the of the. Well, well, let's say you show up in Cleveland at the Republican convention and you don't have that magic number of 1237, which is the number you need to be guaranteed on the first ballot that you're going to be the Republican. Number. Let's say you're 20 or 100 short. Yeah. The chairman of the Republican Party, as you know, Reince Priebus, he says that that's not the rules. They would have to go along with the rules. What would happen if you're just short? Well, I heard him say that. Number one, I don't think I'm going to be there. I think I'm going to be have. I don't think I'll be. Will you go along with the rules? Let me explain something. It's a little unfair because I have been competing against. We started off with 17 people and then we go down to 15 and then 12 and 11 and 10. And I had many, many people that I'm competing with. So, you know, when you talk about the majority plus one, it's a very unfair situation because we had so many people running for office. So one would get 2%, one would get 4%, one, and I was always in the lead. I mean, just about from the beginning, I've been leading. But it's very unfair when I have all of these people running. It's not like I'm running against two people or three people. Hillary's running against one person. So I think that's very unfair, number one. Number two, I think I'm going to get the majority anyway. But if you don't, now, will you abide that, by the rules? Well, I, I think this. I've had many, many people running against me, which really, you understand what I mean. Mathematically, it's, it's unfair. It's almost impossible to believe that I should do that, that I would be able to do it. I think I'll be able to do it. But I will say this. If I was at 1,190, so I'm a little bit off, and, we ha and I have millions of votes more than anybody else, because right now I have 2 million votes more than anybody else that's running for office, okay? By a lot. It's not even close. So are you calling on the RNC to change the rules? If calling, you're close, this. you should still be the I, nominee? I'm not saying this. I think it's going to be very hard for them to do. I have millions of votes more than anybody else that's running. Millions of votes. And, and again, that's also with a lot of people running. So, you know, it's, it's more difficult. But I'd say the majority is a tough thing when you have all these people. I mean, I had races, I guess it started off where they actually started the primaries, where what were there, 12, 14 people, something like that, maybe even more than that. Be, and then I'm supposed to get half. So mathematically, it's unfair, but I still think but those are the rules. The, well, it's it's look, you're supposed to have three people, two people, one person, you're supposed to have people, you're not supposed to have 17 people running. I, well, wanna... I think I'll do it anyway. I think I'll do it. I may do it easily, because I think we'll have a big night in Arizona. And I think we'll do well in Wisconsin. But but I do say this, it's mathematically unfair. Now, if I have millions of votes more, and if I have 1,100 and somebody else is down in four or 500, I think it's awfully tough to take all of these people because out of the system. I want to play for you what the House Speaker Paul Ryan said about the, the use the word riots, if that were to happen. Listen to what he said. Nobody should say such things, in my opinion, because uh, to even address or, 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 or hint to violence is, is unacceptable. Now, you don't want any violence to emerge, right? Of course I don't. They say it all the time. Because you used the word riots twice. I didn't use I, I, I said very simply, 
if that happened, I'll have no part in it. But there could very well be riots. And, and you know that's true. I mean, are we supposed to be so politically so correct? I just want you to... I want, Wolf, are we you, supposed I, to be so politically correct that we're not allowed? I have people, millions and millions of people that have come out. It's the biggest story in world politics today are the number of people that came out. I mean, these people are by the millions. And you see what's happening with the Republicans, and they're not coming for other people. So I just want to be precise. Them. Will you unequivocally say to your supporters, you don't want any violence, you don't want any riots at the convention? Of course I would, 100%. But I have no control over the people. Look, these people you have, have a lot been of control over the people. They listen, a lot of let, your supporters, they listen closely well, to what you're saying. As these you know. people have been disenfranchised. They lost their jobs. They make less money now than they made 12 years ago. People that are working hard and working double jobs are making less money now in real dollars than they made 12 years ago. They are, they see their jobs going to Japan and to China and to Mexico. Mexico, forget it, it's a new China. You know what? They're, they're very, they're not by nature angry people, but I will tell you right now, they're angry people. But you could calm them down. I don't know that I with can. With your I'm, words. I certainly try. You I don't will, want, well, that's I don't what want I, to see what, but, but they're very angry people. They have been misled by politicians for years, and they're tired of it. And that's why I'm doing so well, and that's why I'm leading. Do you understand why there's a sense of unease about you out there in the general public right now? No, I don't see that. I don't see that. I think I'll do very well in the general, and I think I'll beat Hillary very easily. And I think I'll bring in states like Michigan that was devastated by job loss. Uh, states like I New guess York. The, the sense of unease, some of the words that you've said, the uh, the violence at the campaign rallies that they see on television, well, the know, riots we, outside. We have not had anybody hurt, really. At the, well, there's you know, some I people have, that hurt. Excuse me. I have 21,000 people showed up the other day to Arizona. I didn't have one protest. They've tried to block the road, but outside of the road, once Sheriff Joe saw the cars, he moved the cars. You had to cancel that. that whole event in Chicago I because canceled. you were afraid you know why? people could get because hurt. Because I didn't want to see violence. I could have gone to that event very easily, and there would have been probably some problems. But you can understand why some people are nervous. I, I don't really. You know, when I go into those rooms, and I have by far the biggest crowds, much bigger than anybody, and much bigger than Bernie. He is second, I agree, but much bigger than Bernie, much bigger than anybody. You know that. I mean, we had 21,000 people in Arizona. It was like a love fest. Those rooms are, are wonderful, but here's what happens. Sometimes a protester, and I think they're professionals, they get into the room and they start raising their, their voice and they start screaming and sometimes they get physical, very physical, and they start screaming and making noise and it's a disgrace. Sometimes they put themselves in front of the entrance door so people can't get in. Sometimes they try and block a car by chaining themselves to a car in the middle of a highway. They're the problem. My people aren't the problem. They're the problem. And the news doesn't cover it. Let me tell you, you have agitators. These aren't even protesters. You have agitators. And they'll wait for me to make a final point, and just before, they'll start screaming at the top right. of their lungs. People are very upset about it. Let me play uh, this ad. This is a Republican super PAC. It's a very negative ad about you that you've seen, I'm sure, but I'll play it. I love, I'm sure I love seeing it. A person who is very flat-chested is very hard to be a 10. I'd look her right in that fat, ugly face of hers. Look at that face. Would anyone vote for that? She had the height. She had the beauty. She was crazy. But these are minor details. I like kids. I mean, I won't do anything to take care of them. I'll supply funds, and she'll take care of the kids. You know, it really doesn't matter what they write, as long as you've got a young and beautiful piece of ass. Has your language come back to haunt you? No, I, I think people understand. I, I think people, first of all, half of that was show business. The dropping to the knees that was in The Apprentice, uh, the Rosie O'Donnell stuff, 
Uh, but I think people understand. Look, these politicians, I know them. They say far worse when they're in closed doors or where they're with a group of people that they trust. This, a lot of that show business stuff. And you know, in Florida, the amazing thing, they spent $38 million in negative ads on me. And you know what? I won by a record landslide. Pretty amazing. But that's not how you feel about nobody, women. Nobody, of course words. not. Women, nobody respects women more than I do. Nobody takes care of women, and they take care of me because so they do such business, a great job. So it's just show business? It's show business, or they... I don't even know some of those statements. I mean, I'm hearing these statements. Right. I don't even know what they are. Nobody respects women more than I do. Why do you keep... And by the way, I'll take care of women with women's health issues far better than Hillary Clinton, who's a total phony, will take care of women, if she's even allowed to run. Why do you keep attacking Megyn Kelly of Fox? Because every night on her show, she does negative hits on me. Every single night. And frankly, if she didn't, her ratings would drop down far lower than yours. Do you think it's presidential, though, to tweet about her, call her crazy I don't on care. Twitter? I, I, it, it doesn't matter to me. Look, she hits me. She's got a television show. She hits me. When it's unfair, I hit her back. She was fair in the second debate. I thought it was fine. I mean, I thought she was okay. A little, you know, could have done a little bit better, but that's okay. But I thought she was fine in the second debate, and I said it. I told people. They asked me, what did you think of Megyn Kelly? I said, I thought she was fine. Now, here's the story. Every night, the show, it's like, it's like an infomercial in me. Always negative stuff. Always negative stuff. When Always. It's not fair. So I will fight back with Twitter. I will let people know she's a third-rate talent. I will say what I have to say. It's very simple. But it's not fair that she ever, you know, let her not talk about me. And by the way, seriously, if she didn't talk about me, her ratings would go down like a rock. Because Fox News issued an extraordinary statement. Say, your vitriolic attacks against Megyn Kelly and your extreme sick obsession with her is beneath the dignity of a presidential candidate. She's got the obsession. She's the one that puts me on her show every night. Look at her show. Look at the airtime I get on her show. And I don't do her show. She wants me to do it so badly. Roger Ailes wants me to do her show so bad. They want to have a primetime special on Fox Network where Megyn Kelly interviews me. I say, what, what's in it for me? What do I get out of that? You're going to get great ratings. What do I get out of it? They want a primetime special. I said, no, I won't do it. So don't tell me about obsession. She should do somebody else. And I'm telling you, if she didn't do me, watch what happens to her. Watch. Now, in the meantime... She's benefited greatly. She's hotter now than ever before because of me. She should give me at least half of her salary. <laughs> All right, let's talk a little bit about a few other issues before I let you go. Uh, before you lost Iowa to Ted Cruz, you had a good relationship with him. Uh, is it at all realistic if you get the nomination, you could call on this man, you call him Lion Ted, to be your vice presidential running mate? Crazy things happen in politics, I will say that. I've seen things happen that are pretty crazy. That would be so. That's you're not ruling well, that necessarily. I don't want to rule out anything. I don't. I think it's probably unlikely. Uh, and I did have a very good relationship. But I also had a relationship when I said, "When's it going to come?" You know, at some point it had to come. And we were essentially with the last two standing because John is is you know is not doing so well. I mean, he's one for twenty eight. He won his state, and not by much. He won his state, so he's one for 28. I don't know. He's in because he's, you know, he's a guy that doesn't want to get out. Quick question on Hillary Clinton. You recently said she has low energy, very low energy, doesn't have the stamina to be president. You're, you're roughly the same age as Hillary Clinton. Now, why do you say that? I think she doesn't have the stamina. Uh, you watch her, uh, her life. You watch how she'll go away for three, four days. She'll come back. Uh, she'll go. I just don't think she has the stamina. Look. We've got to beat China in trade. We've got to beat ISIS. We've got, we've got so many problems in this country. I say she does not have the stamina to be a good president. Plus, she's always got problems, whether it's Whitewater 
or whether it's emails. Or it's always it's always drama. It should end. It should end. She shouldn't even be running. Honestly, she shouldn't be allowed to run based on the emails. Okay, to be totally honest with you, she's being protected. But uh, Hillary Clinton does not have the stamina, doesn't have the energy, doesn't have it, doesn't have the strength to be president, in my opinion. Mr. Trump, thanks very much Thank for you. joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. Coming up, uh, we'll turn to the Democratic presidential candidates here in the CNN Election Center. Hillary Clinton is coming up. Much more right after this. And welcome back to our election special. The five, the final five candidates joining me now, the Democratic frontrunner, Hillary Clinton. Welcome, Madam Secretary. Thanks Thank very you. much for being Great with us. Great to be here. Um, at your speech today, you reiterated your support for the Iran deal. Now, APEC opposes it. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said it's a stunning historic mistake. Even your fellow Democrat uh, from New York, Chuck Schumer, opposes it. Why are they wrong? Well, as I said today, um, we have put a lid on the Iranian nuclear weapons program. Almost all of their enriched uranium is out of the country. The centrifuges have stopped spinning. We have detection uh, measures that I think will give us uh, fair warning. Uh, so I think on balance, it was uh, the right step to take. But I've also said, look, uh, I gave a speech last summer uh, in which I made clear the slightest infraction needs to have consequences. I believe it's not trust and verify, it's distrust and verify. So I think we have to focus now on a lot of Iranian uh, aggressive behavior while we enforce the agreement on the nuclear weapons program. I think that puts us in a stronger and better position uh, going forward. You uh, took a shot at Donald Trump uh, during the speech, not by name, but I want to play our view for our viewers what you said and then ask you about it. We need steady hands. Not a president who says he's neutral on Monday, pro-Israel on Tuesday, and who knows what on Wednesday, because everything's negotiable. Some things aren't negotiable. And anyone who doesn't understand that has no business being our president. Do you think he's not qualified to be president? Well, I am quoting him. Uh, I think it's important to listen to what he says. You have to take him at his word, so to speak. He has been engaging in bigotry and bluster and bullying. And I think when it comes to understanding what he would do as president, uh, there are serious questions that have been raised in this campaign. Should he be uh, the nominee? Uh, we'll have to address them. You're saying he's a bully, though? Well, I think his behavior certainly uh, qualifies for that. I think his incitement of violence, his constant urging on of his uh, supporters in large numbers to go after protesters, his uh, saying, I want to punch people in the face and telling somebody who did punch somebody, I will pay your legal bills. I think that raises very uh, serious questions. He says that as president, there would be a different tone, that he would have a more presidential tone. You, you've known him for a long time. Is there a different Donald Trump in there? Who knows? I mean, you present yourself to the country the way he's presented himself to the country over the last many months, you know, calling uh, Mexican immigrants rapists and criminals, saying John McCain was not a war hero, being reluctant to denounce the Ku Klux Klan and David Duke, and the list goes on. And so for me, I think you have to take him at his word at how he's behaved and what he has said. 
Uh, and if you do that, then uh, I think people have questions that uh, deserve answers. He makes much about his deal-making ability, <clears throat> his negotiating skills. Are the skills used in business the same as that are used in statecraft? Are they applicable? Well, if you run a business, and I've heard this from many, many business leaders, uh, you have much more authority and control uh, over your uh, employees than if you are the president or the leader of a democracy. You know, political decision making, uh, listening to the full range of voices and opinions is something that our founders highly valued, as do I. So I think there is in general a difference, and I think uh, a lot of the behavior we've seen from him raised some specific questions about what he would do. You said at one point uh, that you were the I think it was the designated yeller-in-chief in in relationships uh, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. You had a front-row seat at the sometimes contentious relationship uh, under the Obama administration. How would you be better? How would your relationship with Israel be better? Well, as I said in my speech today, and it really is built on my many years, um, going back to the first time I went to Israel 35 years ago, and the work that I've done, the people that I've known, and... Uh, admired. Um, I am staunchly in favor of Israel's security. And although we may have differences, which we do, I believe in treating those uh, in a uh, respectful manner, candid, but respectful, which is what I have done in the past. And I think my firm commitment to Israel's security uh, puts me on a very strong foundation to deal with whatever uh, the questions might be uh, in the relationship But more importantly, we have to stand against what's happening in the broader region, which I think is not just a threat to Israel, but a threat to our other uh, partners in the region and even to the United States. What was the disconnect, you think, under the Obama administration? You know, I'm not going to go into that. I think that uh, the president has made very clear uh, that under the uh, Obama administration, uh, Israel has been given... uh, an enormous amount of defensive capabilities. I mentioned uh, the Iron Dome missile defense system, which has worked very well against the rockets coming from uh, Gaza by Hamas. Uh, And I think there have been differences, but I think in general, the relationship remains very strong and central to American foreign policy. You said today, though, you would invite the prime minister within the first couple of days taking office. Right. Well, I've known him a long time. I mean, that's one of my advantages. Is it true you guys yell at each other? Uh, well, let's say we engage in vigorous discussion. Um, and I like that. Look, we have a raucous democracy. Israel has a raucous democracy. I think those of us who are in the midst of the political uh, activities in both of our countries um, understand that a give and take between friends is the best and most honest way to come to any resolution. So... Um, yes, I've, I've had my, uh, my disagreements, but I've also never strayed from my strong commitment to Israel's security. Would you move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem? That's something that really has to be looked at in the context of a two-state solution. And I've always said that. I've always you know, supported that as a first lady, as a senator, as secretary of state. Would you commit to using uh, the U.S. veto power over the, the Security Council to protect Israel? Yes, I would. No matter what. Yes. Well, look, the talk now, you know, I can't predict everything in the future, but in general, the answer is yes. But the talk now is to somehow try to use the U.N. through the Security Council 
to impose uh, parameters on a settlement between Israel and the Palestinians. Number one, I don't think it works. And number two, I don't think that's the place for it to be hashed out. I think it has to be between the two parties. And remember, Anderson, I was the last person who brought Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Abbas together for three face-to-face meetings um, in 2010. The fact that I sat there and it was just George Mitchell and me and President Abbas and Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I watched the interaction and I listened to the issues that they were debating, actually gave me more uh, encouragement and commitment to keep pursuing a two-state solution. Ted Cruz is talking about on day one of taking the office, if he becomes president, of uh, authorizing the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem. What's wrong? What's the, why wouldn't you do that? Because I think that would end any chance for a two-state solution. And I think it would, in the midst of a very dangerous region right now with many threats, not just aimed at Israel, but aimed at Jordan, for example, that Turkey and Lebanon and Egypt and others are coping with, it would light a fire that would add fuel to the flame of what's already so threatening in the region. And I don't think it accomplishes any uh, purpose uh, that would lead us to a two-state solution, but instead it could make it even more dangerous uh, for Israel. And I'm not about to sign off on that. We've seen President Obama uh, is in Cuba right now. Um, They've been cracking down on dissent in advance of of his arrival. Uh, And they're still protecting this woman who's the aunt of the rapper Tupac Shakur, who was convicted of murdering a a New Jersey police officer. The State Department claims that it's in talks with Cuba, Cuba to negotiate her return, but her attorney is saying Cuban officials have assured him her political asylum will not be revoked. Should President Obama have made her return part of the deal? Well, I think what he did was to uh, get an intelligence official, um, as well as we got the return as not part of the deal, but in addition, Alan Gross. And, you know, having been involved in some of those negotiations while I was still Secretary of State, um, you push as hard as you can to get as much as you can. And I support the president's efforts to move uh, the relationship forward. I think it's good for the Cuban people. I want them to have democracy and freedom. And I also want human rights respected. And I know that the president will be meeting with some uh, dissidents, and I I heartily approve of that. And I think we have to continually raise the issues of all of the dissidents. And uh, that's what I, I hope he does, and I will certainly continue to do that. I want to talk about uh, ISIS a little bit. Uh, according to a police report obtained by the New York Times, authorities in Europe say that the Paris attackers used encrypted communications devices uh, during the massacre there. If that is, in fact, accurate, do you believe it proves that major tech companies, most notably Apple, should cooperate with the U.S. and other governments unlocking terrorist phones? I really want to see um, a resolution to this. Now it's caught up in the legal process, as you know. Um, And I've said for many months, there has to be some way to protect our real physical security, to prevent terrorist attacks, to track down perpetrators while we protect online security. I think we've got a lot of really smart people uh, in our tech community, in our government, who somehow have to come to terms with this because, you know, it is a serious problem for law enforcement, and it's also a problem uh, for the tech companies. Uh, your critics say you're trying to have it both ways. You're not taking a side either between, bef- well, between the government Well, you know, my critics have never sector. tried to solve hard decisions like the ones I've faced. You know, sometimes you have to keep working a problem until you get some break in that. You, you know, don't think it is an either-or? I hope it's not an either-or. I mean, I, 
I think it's still too soon to say whether it's an either or because it's now in the legal process. You know, the, the federal courts can make all kinds of orders. I don't know what they will decide. But at the same time, people working in the tech community also have a stake in preventing terrorist attacks on our shores and in keeping people safe. How do we do that? And, you know, I, I think it's um, important to keep trying to work the problem and trying to find some common ground for people to uh, work on. Uh, regarding the Supreme Court, Senator Sanders said last week if he's elected, he would ask President Obama to withdraw the nomination of, uh, of Merrick Garland so that he could, uh, he could nominate a more, in his words, progressive candidate. Is that something you would ask President Obama to do? No, what I want is to ask the Senate to do their constitutional duty, that it's time for them to quit the partisan posturing and receive the nominee, have the appropriate process go forward, including hearings as to whether or not to vote uh, to confirm him. If he's still, though, facing the nomination when you are and, and you get the nomination, would you ask President Obama, would you continue to push for, for Garland? Or if you're elected, would you try to appoint somebody of your own? You know, I think that is getting way ahead of ourselves. I mean, others can say whatever they want to say. I'm going to keep the pressure on the Senate where I think it belongs. Why would we lift the pressure off? Why would, would we? Would he have been we, your pick if you were you president? You know what, he's the, the, we have one president at a time. That's something I want the Senate to remember. <laughs> there is one president at a time. Barack Obama is our president. He has a constitutional responsibility to fill that vacancy. He has exercised it by appointing someone, nominating someone that he believes uh, would be a very good, qualified choice. Do you think he would be a good justice? Oh, look, I think he has a tremendous reputation. But let's focus on we have one president at a time. He's made his nomination. We have a Senate that refuses to fulfill its constitutional obligation. And I believe and hope, perhaps, uh, is more more to the uh, accuracy. I hope that as this election goes forward and a lot of those Republican senators who are up for re-election, who are running in states uh, where they're going to face increasing pressure to do the right thing, to stand up and tell their leader, hey, give him a hearing and let us vote. You don't have to vote for him. You can vote him down, but go through the process. That's what's required. Last week, um, your daughter was out on the campaign trail for you in Salt Lake City, and she implied that you would want to extend Obamacare to undocumented immigrants. I want to play what she said so you can respond to it. She thinks it's so important to extend the Affordable Care Act um, to people who are living and working here, regardless of immigration status, regardless of citizenship status. Donald Trump took to Twitter attacking you, saying that now you want Obamacare for illegal immigrants. Just to be clear, are you in favor of extending Obamacare to undocumented immigrants? There are two steps here. If someone can afford to pay for an insurance policy off the exchanges that were set up under the Affordable Care Act, I support that. Even if they're undocumented? Yes. If they can afford it, they should be able to go into the marketplace and buy it. But it is not going to apply to people who are in need of subsidies in order to afford that because the subsidies question has to be worked out in comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, and what I do want to see is that we have more options for undocumented people uh, to be able to get the health care they need. It's not only the right and moral thing to do for them, it's also important that we keep ourselves 
uh, healthy, and public health requires that. So I'd li- I see this as a two-step process. At the debate in Miami recently, uh, you were pushed on uh, what you would do with the 11 million or so undocumented immigrants who are currently here. Uh, you had said no more deportations of children. Uh, you said you don't even really want to deport family members. Right. Uh, you want to focus on those who have broken the law. Um, are you saying no more deportations of anybody who hasn't broken, uh, who is not a violent criminal? Because won't that just encourage more people to come if people know that there's not any chance they'll be deported as long as they obey the law? Well, I think people who are already here have to be put in a separate category. People who have been here, some of them decades. I want to stop the raids and the roundups. Um, I don't believe we should be breaking up families and deporting mothers and fathers. Uh, I think that is, you know, really unnecessary. I want to go after people who have committed uh, violent crimes. I want to go after people who pose a threat to our country's security, absolutely. But I want to get comprehensive immigration reform, and I want to start trying to get it as soon as I'm elected president, if I'm so fortunate. I mean, it's obviously a very difficult situation, but doesn't allowing those who already broke the law and crossing the border illegally to come here, doesn't that reward them for breaking the law? The immigration law? That there has to be a uh, several-step process under comprehensive immigration reform. I do think people have to pay a fine because, yes, they came here without uh, legal authorization. They have to pay a fine. They have to learn English. They have to be at the end of the line uh, in terms of others who came here legally and are waiting to be processed. But they should be in the pipeline and they should be given legal authority to work, which I think actually helps the whole economy because you can no longer exploit undocumented workers, pay them less, and endanger jobs of others. So I have a whole theory about how we can do this, and I don't see the purpose in breaking up families. I've met a lot of these families, Anderson. I've met you know, people who've been here for one or two decades, who have worked, who have supported their families, who some kids were born before, a lot of kids were born after, and they're citizens, and you know, there's a knock on the door, and all of a sudden, a father or mother is deported. I think we can send a strong message that we're literally drawing a line between those who have been here uh, so that those who might think, hey, I could fit in under that line, are told, no, they can't. And we have increased defenses along the border. Right now, there is no net migration from Mexico. In fact, Mexicans have gone back to their home uh, villages and areas. So we know we can do a better job on border security. And then for people who do come, uh, especially from Central America, they need to be treated uh, humanely and fairly. They need to be given full due process to see whether they qualify under our laws to be given asylum status. Just a couple of politics questions. You are not doing well with, with white male voters. You did well with them in 2008, not this time. I think uh, exit poll showed you lost them in all five primaries uh, last week. Why do you think there is that disconnect and what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm doing really well. Um, you know, right now I have uh, more votes than anybody running. I've got more than eight and a half million votes, I think. And that's a million more than Donald Trump. And it's two and a half million more than Bernie Sanders. So we're going to build on the broad, inclusive coalition we have. and We're going to keep adding to it. Why and- do you think among the white male voters... 
you well, have an issue? you know, I, I, I don't know, because I haven't analyzed all that data. Um, in some places, I've carried uh, white voters. In other places, I haven't carried white voters. But we're going to reach out to everybody. Nobody is, in my view, to be written off or, or left out. I want to reach out, and I think I have a message that will resonate with voters of all kinds. Um, Bernie Sanders has uh, <clears throat> a new, I don't know if it's a line of attack or some, a new line he's been saying. I, I want to play that. And let me say a word or two about uh, my good friend Donald Trump. Just kidding, he's not my good friend. In fact, I never even went to one of his weddings, you know, I just never did. But probably heard that one before. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Um, in a new CNN poll, Sanders does better um, against Republicans than, than you. Do you buy that? No, I don't buy that at all. I think any horse race poll this far out is meaningless. And I also think that, you know, and I'm proud of this, Senator Sanders and I have run a campaign based on issues. And we haven't been personally attacking each other and running negative ads. We've had differences on issues. And we have tried to draw the contrast, which I think is fully appropriate compared to what the Republicans have done. I'm pretty well vetted. I think people have a good idea about, uh, you know, what I've been through, who I am. And I, I think that actually makes me the stronger candidate uh, to go into a general election. You know, one of the things you said uh, actually to me at a, a town hall, um, I think it was New Hampshire. It's been a while. <laughs> We've done a lot of them. Um, it was really personal, and I, I had never heard you said it before, and I think you've now said it once or twice, that this doesn't come naturally to you, mm -hmm. that your husband, it's sort of, it's part of his DNA. It, it's not for you. Right, right. Is, is that, can you explain that a little bit more? Can you talk about that? Well, you know, it's funny because every time I have a job, I get really, really high ratings. You know, go back and look at my favorability ratings when I was Secretary of State and how well regarded I was when I was in the Senate and as first lady, you know, when I started, you know, actually getting into politics. So whenever I have a job, I really work hard to do it to the best of my uh, capacity and I get good results and I work across the aisle and people who never have a good thing to say about me when I'm running for something actually say really nice things about me when we're working together. So doing the job, getting results for people um, making a difference uh, for our country, that's what I feel best at and what I am committed to doing. And I think that uh, the kind of results that I get when I'm actually holding a position speak to that. But actually going out and campaigning, um, it is harder. It is harder for me. And it may be partly that it seems harder for women, um, and I recognize that. Um, and also as someone who has supported you know, my husband and other Democrats for so many years, you know, moving from he or she to I or me is not easy for me either. Do you think you're held to a different standard? I, I've heard, I've seen people on television saying, oh, you should smile more, <laughs> that when you're yelling, it sounds, you know, that when you're speaking, it sounds like you're yelling. Yeah. Do you think that's a, uh, is that sexist? Well, let me say, I don't hear anybody say that about men. And I've seen a lot of male candidates who don't smile very much and who talk pretty loud. So I guess I'll just leave I've it heard male that. candidates even yell. <laughs> yeah, I, One or two. There have been a few of those around. Just final question. Um, I've heard some de Democrats say that they relish the idea of you taking on Donald Trump this fall. President Obama 
clearly is geared up to campaign. Do you have any concerns that by having President Obama out there campaigning he's, and talking against Donald Trump, he's actually going to kind of play into Donald Trump's hands? Is going to elevate Donald Trump? I don't think so. I, look, I'm not yet the nominee. I hope to be the nominee. And I intend to run a campaign about the real issues facing our country and to knock down the barriers that are standing in the way of people getting ahead and staying ahead. That is really my you know, core uh, commitment. And I want everybody out there campaigning on what we can do together. And I'd be honored to have the president. Uh, I'd be delighted to have others who are with me in making that case, whoever the Republicans end up nominating. Do you feel like you know how to run against Donald Trump? I know how to run a campaign that is about the real issues affecting the American people. And I believe at the end, Americans are going to vote on who they think can do all aspects of the job. This is like a big, giant you know, job interview. And at the end of the process, I really believe Americans are going to say, who's steady, who's predictable, who gets results, who has the track record, the experience, the temperament to do all aspects of the job that somebody's going to start doing in January of 2017. Well, Secretary Clinton, thank you for coming to the Election Center. Good Appreciate to talk it. to you. Uh, when we come back, Senator Bernie Sanders will join us in our Election Center. Check out the all-new CNN.com slash podcast. There you can find all of the CNN shows available in audio. New shows like Amanpour and original podcasts Running Mate and the Bell Ringers Club. To listen to these or our other shows, search CNN in your favorite app or go to the new CNN.com slash podcast. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.